Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. Today we're eating fire with Jose Hernandez Diaz. Jose Hernandez Diaz is a 2017 NEA Poetry Fellow. He holds degrees from the University of California, Berkeley, and Antioch University, Los Angeles. His work appears in the Best American Non-Required Reading, Green Mountains Review, Wisache, New Orleans Review, North American Review, The Progressive Witness, among others. He has served as an editor for Floricanto Press and Lunch Ticket. His manuscript was a finalist for the 2018 Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. We'll start with a clip of Jose Hernandez's poetry, then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Hernandez Diaz, some conversation from us, and finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Bienvenidos. So, has there ever been like a celebrity or an artist, philosopher, something like that, that you maybe alive or dead? that you would choose to go on a date with? Oh, okay. So a date is really different than dinner. I've thought about this from a dinner perspective. I'm always like, oh, I would love to go to dinner with like Simon Bolivar or something like fun like that. Um, but a date, a date, hmm. The problem is, is that so many people in history that I would date were like kind of terrible in some way. <laughs> like I'm like, oh, Pancho Villa is hot, but oh, <laughs> no, no, no. That would be a horrible date. Um, maybe Josephine Baker. Okay. She's good looking. She's banging. She's in Paris. She's helping like resistance in World War II or whatever. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, get it. Josephine Baker. She was hot and like not problematic, maybe, as far as I know. Wait, okay, wait. Did Frida? No. Yeah, they banged. They banged. Ah, In the movie. In the movie. movie. In the movie. That does not speak to reality. Yeah, but I mean. In the movie. Maybe. Well, speaking of movies and Frida, it's Frida Kahlo's birthday today. What was? It's like one of the few birthdays that I know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not Mm. trying to. Kind of fascinating. Up to par. Like uh, she would be a cancer. Trivia. <laughs> Wait, what'd you say? <laughs> I was just thinking about astrology and how mm. she would be a cancer. Um, I dated a couple of cancers. So, um, which sounds more dramatic than it is. I mean, like if I'd been like, oh, I dated two Libras, nobody would think it was dramatic, but because it's cancers, it's, it's just like, oh shit. Um, yeah. no, um, I dated a couple of people that were, um, of the astrological sign cancer and, um, mm, not surprised that somebody who is known for being temperamental, <laughs> <laughs> and a little mercurial um is from that sign hmm that's all i'll say about that <laughs> yeah why do cancers get a bad rep my i usually of course know like people's astrological signs but mm. i don't really ascribe to them necessarily like i don't go around being like i don't like scorpios ever you know what i mean like one scorpio didn't mess it up with for me uh, i definitely I dated some, a scorpio once I know too <laughs> Um, you know, I do and I don't, Uh, but how, Mm -hmm. this is what I would say. Like, if you were like, you know, 
like put me up against a wall and were like, tell us what you really believe. I'd be like, I believe in nothing. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I do like the idea that our personalities are not our fault, um, <laughs> but there's something we inherited from the stars mm-hmm. and that it's really just about this magical set of circumstances of how the universe was aligned. And mm-hmm. that gave you a little bit of the spark that's you. Um, also like Virgos are crazy people and I am a crazy person and all of the ways that Virgos are described as crazy people. So (laughs) maybe maybe it just gives me an out. (laughs) I'm just like, Oh, I'm a Virgo. Um, so that's why people will be like, what's with the Virgo energy? And I'm like, yeah, deep Virgo. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it's all, it's all crap, you know, but that's, that's sort of the beauty of narrative, right? It's like we're imposing a narrative and we're making sense of ourselves in a way that is outside of ourselves and totally not our fault. Yeah, um, we have like, it's something bigger to kind of grasp onto. See, this is People, this is what astrology does. It gives us something yeah. that is a, you know, fun and also that we secretly believe in more than we ever admit. Um, okay, that being said, that being said, um, back to Frida Kahlo and her deep cancer energy. Who would you go on a date with? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a really tough one. I'm trying to pick someone not problematic. See? Um, See? All of history is problematic. Yeah. Well, what about like Anne Sexton? Would it be in like in modern times or would it be in like her times? Like, would I be traveling to her? Right. Does she like sushi, you know, or sake? Well, now you need to write a book about getting sushi with Anne Sexton. (laughs) I I just love that title. Getting sushi with Anne Sexton. So Jose, our guest today, he already knew who he was going to take on a date. So he wrote a poem, My Date with Frida Kahlo. And let's uh, tune in and see how that date turned out. My date with Frida Kahlo. I went on a date with Frida Kahlo. Frida was like a mother to me, or a muse at least, so it was kind of awkward at first. She sure was beautiful though. She had on a colorful derboso, and one of her monkeys sat on her shoulder the entire date. I didn't mind, of course, anything to sit next to Frida. In fact, I became close friends with the monkey. His name was El Jaguar. Anyway, Frida and I ate at an underground Mexico City cafe. It was where real artists hung out. I felt out of place, but then again, she invited me there, so maybe I belonged. Frida and I had Cuban coffee and vegetarian tacos. We sipped on mezcal and black tea. At the end of the night, I tried to make a move on her. She feigned resistance at first, but then aggressively kissed me back. We kissed for about 30 minutes, beneath the protest mural by David Alfaro Siqueiros. She asked to paint me naked. I was too shy and refused. On the second date, she stood me up. I mourned for a couple of weeks and then moved on to my rational pursuit of Rosario Castellanos. Why are Latino poets obsessed with Frida Kahlo? I say this, having in my one book of poems, a poem about Frida Kahlo. So what is what is with us? Like, are we obsessed? Like, what's up? I mean, I can only really answer that from my own perspective. I don't I don't want to like 
make a bad generalization. I, it might be it might be because of like a sense of nationalism, sense of pride, sense of like the biggest female artist is from Mexico City. You know, like that's a really that's a sense of pride for me. Yeah. OK. Um, and I mean, she's obviously a cultural icon. It was always a sense of connection for me. Like I grew up knowing like we were born in the same neighborhood. Mm. Um, and then, right. My mom was a visual artist for a long time. Um, my collages are inspired by Frida Kahlo. It's like very surrealism. A while back, I was reading about that art, like artistic movement. And it's actually very much like anti-women. They they weren't like empowering women. You know what I mean? No, no, right. no, not even, even remotely. But yeah, I get your point. Yeah. It's like contemporary art artists at the time were not concerned with females as anything other than object to art, right? Just okay. the thing to yeah. be painted, the thing that exists uh, mm-hmm. to be looked upon. Yeah. Right? And and like a lot of people, a lot of like American people are obsessed with Frida. Um, and I want to pose that question too. And so I've felt this innate connection my entire life, um, just, just out of the principle like being being from the same neighborhood, the same city, the same country, et cetera. I have one Frida poem, mm. but it's not necessarily about her. It's like I it's like um, I allude to Frida Kahlo, but in the poem, I'm pretty much saying like how culture is like extracted, cherry picked and it's like bought and sold. And it's, you know, hey, it, my, poem, my poem is actually yeah. it takes place in the Frida Kahlo gift shop. In Casa Azul. Oh. So like the poem sort of takes into consideration, like, you know, what is this manufacturing and this consumption of Mexican culture? Well, maybe our poems but, are in conversation. I know. It sounds like they are. <laughs> and maybe it's a really let's um let's do like an anthology. Um, OK, but here's everyone's the- Frida poems. Like, what's up? Um, yeah. And, you know, going to into like Jose Hernandez Diaz, you know, poem. Right. I, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, the second line is Frida was like a mother to me or a muse mm-hmm. at least. So yeah. it was kind of awkward at first. Right. Um, <laughs> it just made me think of like meeting your heroes and how. Right. When you have such a one sided relationship with somebody, you know, whether it be an artist or a writer or an icon of your culture and heritage, you know, how are you supposed to meet as equals? And is that even possible? Right. And it's not, you know, if you look at Frida Kahlo's like biography and what's actually available on her, um, it's clear that she was not someone who courted celebrity while at the same time she was also very aware of it. Right. She wasn't operating outside of it, but she didn't actively seek it. And yet she knew how she was perceived and played into that perception for sure. I mean, even the fact that she was what half German um, Mm -hmm. and still chose to dress in like traditional Mexican garb that at that point had been out of style for like 50 years. But she is the daughter of like a German (laughs) and she is someone who grows up in extreme wealth. Or in a very Tony neighborhood of Mexico City, mm-hmm. you know, and so it, it's an interesting like tension because she she is in a way like exploiting her culture, but she also is operating uh, kind of outside of it at the same time. She's well, not really right. an insider. 
in that way. But it's it's very conscious, like you said, and it's political and it's I mean, she definitely I I mean, yeah, from my interpretation, she knew how she was being perceived, like exactly Mm -hmm. how you just said. But she like she wasn't all bark like she was bite, too. You know what I mean? Yeah, she she was at the protest. She was organizing. She I feel like her political inclinations definitely reflected and like supported her work. Oh, yeah. Um, And I think that's what uh, her why she's just like timeless now and like resonating and memorable and just so like the captivating you know like to Mexicans to Latinos to um, Americans to um, the entire world you know what I'm saying like people come from all over the world to um, experience that museum it's always got a line it's always got a line you have to buy your tickets online because if you show up and try to stand in line for the ticket booth you're like especially after COVID but get this Adriana don't even I want to read your poem but like don't even get me started about the gift shop at the Frida Kahlo Museum because <laughs> it is not good. It's just, it's so generic. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's quite terrible. It's like, the, it's so interesting to me, you know, because even at the conclusion of like Hernandez Diaz's poem, right, he says he's going to move on to his irrational pursuit of Rosario Castellanos Figueroa, right? Who is like, or, or sorry, he just writes Rosario Castellanos. It's really fascinating because outside, I think of people like me who grew up Think, you know, reading things like Oficio de Tinieblas just because my parents had it at home. Mm-hmm. She does not exist in the cultural imagination the way that Frida Kahlo does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like Rosario Castellanos Figueroa is somebody who is a incredibly famous writer, but in a Mexican context and not mm-hmm. of the world in a way that like Frida Kahlo is. Um, right. And so I think it's really, yes, I think there's something really interesting there. Um, And I am curious in a way, like, you know, the cultural references that are in the poem, like why Rosario Castellanos, um, you know, and even then like kissing beneath a mural by Siqueiros, um, which is also fascinating because like David Alfaro Siqueiros was a rival of Diego Rivera. Right. And so what is, you know, like the subterfuge (laughs) that is happening there? That tension. Yeah. Yeah. I love the old Mexican muralists. I also think there's something fun about, you know, a painter ghosting you and then deciding to move on to a poet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that happens in the modern world. It's not going to go better with the poet. (laughs) Oh, my God. Don't even... Uh, I might sulk about like, oh, I'm an Aries and I'm like, don't don't like date me. But then I'm also I'll twist the plot and be like, better not date me. I'm a poet. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like, uh-huh. things like that. But I mean, that. but it uh, kind of all goes back to the, like the romanticization. I can't even say that. Frida Kahlo no, I agree. Romanticized. Like I had a partner that just like, you are Frida. I am Diego. And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> Wait, does that mean you each get a house? <laughs> I would honestly love that. And the little bridge connecting on to that. They were on. That is the thing. That is the way I reference them the most. I'm not going to lie. Is that like I joke, I joke with my husband about how my writing studio is like, you know, we need to buy him a house next door so he can work in his house and then I can work in my little house. Yeah. (laughs) And we can be happy that way Um, because we have different levels of cleanliness. No, but. And yeah, like probably different creative processes, you know, like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and different schedules. And if only, you know, I had like a, 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just like the means, right? I know. So what we really had to do finance my is we have to hook up. Well, what is it like the Rockefellers were paying Diego Rivera, right? Mm-hmm. And then he was like, all right, hook up my wife too. And she was making commissions, but not on the level that he was, you know? And so like what we really need is to be successful. <laughs> Hey. So let's uh let's become successful first and then we'll mm. buy all the houses we need. <laughs> okay. No, I think there is something that people like about dating creative people though. I think that mm-hmm. especially if you consider yourself a non-creative, which I think is a very weird designation to begin with, there there are definitely people who want to date creatives who don't consider themselves to be creative, which I think is wild because I think everyone has the ability to be creative just by watercolor set. See what you do. Um, but I agree. But I definitely, yeah. Yeah. I definitely think there is a fetishization of the way that like artistic people live and are. And, you know, there's this fantasy like, oh, I'm going to date a poet and she's going to write poems about me. And my girlfriend's a poet. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, yeah, okay. What does that even mean? It's just like, yeah. it's, a, it's a vocation. It's a profession. No two poets are the same. Right. Yeah. And honestly, I don't write good poetry when I'm in a decent relationship. <laughs> you can maybe, quote me on that one. Anyone maybe, I've ever. Maybe dated. this is the fire and brimstone. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be single and angry in order for my poetry to be going well. Um, wait, should I ask how your poetry is going? <laughs> is that a... No. All right. Um, on that note, um, let's listen to some more poetry and then your interview. Um, so here's a, a little more love with Jose Hernandez Diaz. Saludos to the moon. Sometimes I wish my Spanish was better like to the point where I could speak it without having to think about it. I can get by, trust me, but it's broken. Like that trendy restaurant downtown, broken Spanish. It would be nice to write poems in Spanish or even a mix of both languages. But my instinct, it seems, is to lean on the language I have mastered. For now, at least, I can throw in a word here and there, like tesoro, language es un tesoro, the moon, tesoro, Leaves, tesoro. My computer always marks Spanish words as misspelled. I want to say todo bien hasta la última palabra. In my neighborhood, or barrio, it is mostly Mexican or Mexican-American. Five gangs in the neighborhood. I've never had a problem. There are also many hardworking blue-collar factory workers. No pretension, grit, muchas ganas. Many have served or serve in the military, and even though I'm very liberal, I don't judge them because honestly, if I hadn't found writing in high school, I probably would have served too without many other options. I never know how to end a poem, especially a poem that I didn't expect to write, but I will go back to some more Spanish words. Adios, adios to the sun and the skyline tonight. Saludos. Saludos to the moon with her accent so bright. Tecolote, published in Poetry Magazine. The Mexican word for owl is tecolote. From the Nahuatl, tecolato. I think it sounds beautiful in both languages, both of my origins. 
My favorite bird is the tecolote, the way it sits in the tree, wise insomniac, alone, only company is rain. At night it comes alive, a little moon, a myth, a continent of leaves. At midnight, the tecolote transforms into a jaguar, into a python, into a dragon. When I was younger, my mom used to tell me I was like a tecolote because I would stay up late to watch Letterman or Conan O'Brien. Then as a teenager, I was a tecolote because I would go out late with friends and party. Now, at 35, I'm getting a tattoo of a tecolote on my forearm. Reminder of my childhood, my ancestry, the night. Gracias, tecolote, protector of the moon and sky. The Fire Eater, published in Southeast Review. A fire eater performed his tricks on Hollywood Boulevard by the entrance to the 101 freeway. It was autumn. Just as he was about to inhale the bright flame, however, he slipped on a leaf and fell into the street. A motorcycle swerved out of the way and barely missed him. The fire eater quickly got up and jumped back onto the curb. He counted his lucky stars. One star, two stars, three stars. But there was no reason to go on. At least he felt that way at the moment. His family of circus performers had abandoned him. He would have to make it on his own. Perhaps he could go back to school. Who was he kidding? Eating fire was his only skill. It wasn't much of a marketable skill either. Maybe he could make it on America's Got Talent or get hired in a Vegas show. These were his hopes and dreams, but were they merely pipe dreams? For now, at least, he would have to con be content with eating fire on Hollywood Boulevard by the 101 freeway. Maybe someone important would discover him there tomorrow. Maybe the flame would no longer scar his autumnal heart. The Mime and the Old Man, published in Poetry Northwest. A mime fell to the floor and pretended he was dead. A young couple walked by. They stared and pointed continued on their way. Then a butcher walked by. He tugged on the mime's sleeve. After no response, he too continued on his way. Then an old man walked by. He clapped his hand beside he clapped his hands beside the mime's ear. No response. Then he shouted into his ear. Nothing. Finally the old man lay on the floor with the mime and pretended he was dead. You are, you're a poet. You said you like Rage Against the Machine and I definitely yeah. like love that band, heck yeah. But it's not even like the like the instruments that I gravitate towards, it's the lyrics. Um, and I found yeah. it funny how you said like, you know, we like the perception of poetry, like we think it's outdated or inaccessible. Was there like a specific moment where you realize like poetry is everyday life, is accessible language, is conversational? Like I know you were talking about your high school experience. Is there like a moment when like had a existential crisis and you're like, you know what, this is really like my calling, my vocation in life? Yeah, I think, um, you know, after I graduated undergrad, I didn't know what I want to do with my life. And um, 
I didn't know many English teachers that looked like me. I wasn't mm. interested in teaching English. Um, I was more into creative writing. So I started going to the public libraries mm-hmm. and um, I discovered contemporary poetry. And that's when the light came on that there was writers writing today, writers of color, writers that look like me, writers from my neighborhood. You know, that was when poetry became more of a living thing as opposed to something you put in a museum or, or you know, or you study in a university. So I just started going to library like nonstop. I became like a library rat, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and um, I just would check out all these poetry books and I had no social life. Um, <laughs> sometimes people, I feel like they say like, oh, you publish so much. And I'm like, if you knew how many hours of just like sitting in my room on Friday, Saturday, not doing anything social, like I wouldn't recommend it now, you know, but I've put a lot of time of just like, just like, you know, reading and mastering the craft and form. And I didn't know that that that's what I was doing. I was just so into it that you read so much and you start to pick up things, you know, form and line break and and things like that. Your work is very, is like very conversational every day. You know, there's everyday images, pop culture references, but then it's also very surreal yeah uh, my writing tends to be split between my reality mm-hmm. and my and my surreality or, or the mm-hmm. um you know s- subversive poems that i write then again I, I have a lot of different experiences you know i grew up in in northern orange county and then southeast la and they're a little bit different you know and the similarities so i think they both influence i grew up around surfers skaters graffiti artists and i also grew up grew up around cholos you know so that's southern california you know that's yeah. that's I didn't realize that then, but that's just how it is around here, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's so eclectic. Yeah. And that's, that's something I really enjoy about the LA everyday life, like walking down the street. And I'm influenced by it all, you know? I don't, I don't, sometimes I go in there thinking that I want to write about something, mm, but yeah. usually it's, it's, I follow the improvisation and, mm. and uh, the line. But with the Fire Eater specifically, that one, I've told this story before, so I don't, I don't feel funny about telling it anymore but um <laughs> that was a few years ago mm-hmm. i asked my mother straight up when i had won the nea fellowship some mom's like a hard line like um, mexicana that is like you know i think she wanted me to be like a butcher or construction worker or something so a poet is not something like very macho you know right. in their eyes okay. in their eyes so um i asked her well now that i won this award do you think i'm gonna make it as a writer and she was like no like straight up you know not like maybe no she's like no it's too hard you know so um i was Harsh like well, i already won this this award yeah that like professors that are like tenured yeah you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i don't understand that you know so um that's a bit of my writing um experience comes from like feeling very competent as a writer mm. talented you know i put in the work already been doing this for years yet at the same time like folks in my everyday life sort of think oh this guy is just like you know barely making it that that builds a fire though you know right that builds the fire because um my contemporaries are like full-time instructors and you know living well and I think there's more at stake for me and and um that's what fueled my writing but getting back to the fire heater story when she said no I was like, whatever, you know, I was sort of kind of used to it. But then I, I went, I went, I, I wrote a poem about it and I created the fire eater who was abandoned by his circus performer family. Oh, wow. And then okay. he ends up on the street having to rely on his talent in order to survive. So it was like a metaphor for my situation as a writer. Wow. Okay. Love that. Because I yeah. definitely, maybe I need to be a close. It's not possible. It's not possible to be understood <laughs> unless I yeah. told you it. Right. Because right. Yeah. I took it very 
literal. I, yeah. I was just like, oh, I've seen many, you know, street performers in, in Los Angeles and Mexico City and a lot of, you know, big metropolitan areas. And that's how people make their living, you know, like they are yeah. struggling. They're washing your windshield real quick at the st- at the red light. So I very much interpreted it very literal as far as like the imagery is concerned. But between the lines, I did feel that sense of like, you know, longing, um, abandonment, survival, perseverance, yeah. all of those themes that that you're talking about. But I, I mean, wow, I appreciate just the insight yeah. behind the scenes, inspiration. Um, and that's like some harsh Mexican mom loves. I yeah. feel that because my Mexican yeah. mom was like, you need to go to college. No questions asked. And I was over here like, I want to be an artist. And, yeah. you know, she was like, no. But turns out I'm still, <laughs> I still got, you know, I'm still, you know, um, liberal arts major. So that, that's that story without getting too deep into what happened <laughs> next. Very cool. OK, so also is, there's another poem I came across. Um, Saludos to the moon. And oh, yeah. I wanted to kind of dive deep into maybe like what the poem is talking about either literally or figuratively of not necessarily knowing Spanish that well and also leaning into the language that you're most comfortable speaking and assuming that's English so can you talk a little bit about you know like what inspired this piece specifically and also like are you integrating spanish into your poems which in in um saludos to the moon obviously you are yeah and what that process is like yeah i do i know if it's um necessary or natural to Mm -hmm. the way i carry myself but i'm not going to do it just for political you know points or like to gain street cred or anything like that (laughs) because if i didn't say that if i wouldn't say it in real life i'm not going to just juice it up for the poem you know because some people will do that you know no for me it was you know growing up in north orange county an area where people don't really speak spanish Mm -hmm. so growing up i didn't really notice but Anytime my parents would speak Spanish to me, I would just say like, oh, yeah. And I would answer them in English, you know, over there. It wasn't I didn't really know that that was like insulting or, you know, because some of my L.A. friends are like, oh, no, you're not supposed to speak English to your parents, you know. And, um, you know, (laughs) well, because my parents are from Mexico, like immigrants. Uh And yeah. And um, but they eventually, you know, they learned they learned a lot of English. Yeah. The Spanish that I was dealing with was like everyday Spanish. You know, my parents don't have formal education. So it was it was um, the Spanish that I sort of picked up was like a broken Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, um, I can get away with it, especially if I go to Mexico, like I'm forced and my, mm-hmm. I can become kind of fluent. But over here, I just would, you know, especially when I was younger, I would just take the easy way out mm-hmm. and answer everybody in English. Mm-hmm. And um, so my Spanish became, you know, sort of broken. And uh, my twin brother, for example, he barely speaks it like he he he, um, he messes it up big time, you know, <laughs> and uh, but my older siblings, they speak it like fluently uh-huh, uh-huh. but I, I think what happened was when we were growing up we could speak english for, to my older siblings and and then they didn't have that they just had to speak spanish because my parents were still learning it more so I... yeah so i think that happened sometimes yeah also the area where i grew up like i said there was not a lot of i had mexican friends but they were like fourth generation fifth generation pochos didn't even know Spanish. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, more like into Rage Against the Machine, skateboarding, things like that. But mm-hmm. like I said, culturally, if it comes down to it, it was an American, you know, Southern California subculture going on there. Yeah. Um, that happens to a lot of families. You're right. And it happened to my family too. My younger siblings that were born in Los Angeles don't speak Spanish as well as I do. 
And my abuelita kind of blames my parents like, oh, you guys like forgot or you guys like dropped the ball on that one, you know, but it's about like assimilation too. And, and like, not necessarily a lot of people have criticized like, oh, your parents got lazy or whatever. Not even that, you know, like you're just fully immersed in a new country, a new city, a new school system, and you have to survive and you have to assimilate. And there was a long time when I didn't speak Spanish either. And I honestly like forgot and I became really rusty, but then, you know, you have to like put in the work and remember or like tap into that. And I love what you said too. Like, I'm not going to just insert Spanish words for like poetry credit, you know, like, I mean, yeah, like when it, when it's natural, when it fits and there's been a lot of discussion about translating the word or even italicizing the word. What's your, um, uh, the Spanish word, like in any given poem, I know for sure I started, I was italicizing words and then like doing the little asterisks and like putting the definition, but then it's actually no, that's not necessary. I know I started that. I started that way when I would read, especially the older work from the sixties and seventies, it was italicized a lot back then. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think Eduardo Corral is the first person that Mm -hmm. I noticed that he would, he didn't do that. And I was sort of confused why he didn't do that. And then I heard an interview Mm -hmm. and he was just mentioning that, you know, we're not foreign and, you know, Spanish isn't foreign and it's, you know, well, it's not indigenous, but you know, it's been here longer than English and and just, you know, we're not going to be othered and Mm -hmm. just sort of mix it in like a mezcla naturally. And um, that's when I said, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. And I stopped like italicizing, you know, it's not like I, it's not like my work is flooded, you know, with a lot right. of Spanish, but I have a poem that I can read to show, sort of show you how that process goes of, of the of the whole code switch unit or whatever you want to call it. Uh, sure. Yeah. If you have a handy. Yeah, it's right here. It's forthcoming in um, Honey Literary. It's called um, The Pocha with the Adelita Tattoo. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with the Pocha with the Adelita Tattoo. She's so cultured and idiosyncratic. Her hair is up in a bun. She wears heels with blue jeans, red lipstick. Her tattoo is Day of the Dead and Mexican Revolutionary themed. Oh, this is actually the older version because in the newer version, I put Dia de los Muertos and Mexican Revolutionary Mm. themed. Her eyes are bocha light brown like honey. I don't know if she speaks Spanish. If she does, it's probably broken like mine. Mm. The bocha with an Adelita tattoo and I go out on a date to a local taco shop. We talk about music and music, art, and poetry. We have a few cocktails and eat tacos. At the end of the night, I ask her about her tattoo. She says she got it because it represents her Mexican heritage and because Las Adelitas were badass women. I tell her it's lovely and lean in for a kiss. Oh, wow. That's an example of that. Yeah. I love the reference to Adelita. And I wrote down a couple other notes from it, like the red lipstick, the Dia de los Muertos, and especially the the reference to like pocha and pocho culture. And that was a term that I first came across with the poet, a Fresno poet, um, Sarah Borjas. And she, for me, totally kind of like revolutionized like that concept of like claiming a term because I feel like pocha was derogatory. Yeah, it was. And then it's... I think it still sort of is to some people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, me, I'm technically not really a bocho because my parents uh, are 
from Mexico. So I'm technically Chicano or first generation. But like I said, I grew up like in, in sort of gray area where mm-hmm. I was first generation, but I was not um, as skilled in Spanish as, as I would have wanted to be, you know, you know, I was, I was Americanized. I'm not going to lie. Like you said, when you're growing up, you're not aware of all the politics that goes on. And, you know, you, I, I grew up liking football because I was good at it, not because I wanted to assimilate to the white man. You know what I mean? Like I, I just right. liked it. I played right. it on the street with my friends. You know what I mean? Like that's the problem that a lot of times we theorize and we get academic with a lot of these concepts. But bottom line is like when you're growing up like that, you don't have the privilege to know what what everything means, you know, at that level, at that age. You're just doing it because that's what people do in your neighborhood, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I like for me as a like Mexican American and like I um, present like very white. I'm really light skinned and everything. And that was like an identity thing that I've struggled with a lot of the time because I can, you know, pass and assimilate and like we, yeah. And like all of these different like concepts that we're putting labels to, but in my actual lived experience, I was definitely like a punk kid growing up, like surfing and skateboarding and like liking rock music, like you said. And I wasn't necessarily like aware of the um, identity politics that I was either performing or not, you know, and it's the thing is, yeah, even even with like bands, there's a lot of bands that are, you know, predominantly Chicano, like at the drive in Rage Against the Machine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these these strict labels, they don't necessarily fit all the time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was immersed in in northern Orange County culture for when I was growing up, but I was always the darkest Mexican in the room. You know what I mean? So I could never Uh blend in and like, oh, no, I'm actually white. I never wanted that. (laughs) Right. And some people think that, you know, oh, you're dark. You must have wanted a bit light. No, Mm -hmm. I had I always had the prettiest growing class, the homecoming queen, all that. You know what I mean? Get it. Uh Back when I was in shape, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But um, (laughs) so that's why I never had to worry about that complex, like feeling Mm -hmm. like, you know, why am I going to complain? You know? back then and um so it was always something i celebrated especially i think rage against the machine taught me a lot of that growing up yeah it reminds me of kind of the concept of like the model immigrant right because our parents come here as immigrants and like wanting this better life for us and the so-called american dream which we all know is uh we can we can debate that later um off the record but um i don't think i think i was far from a model immigrant i mean we grew up low income you know um i was getting suspended from school you know what i mean i was i was not an asshole you know what i mean but i was just a regular person like politics aside i was a human being you know right totally no yeah i i like that a a lot just kind of like implicating yourself in that yeah like the everyday life and we don't always subscribe or ascribe to these structures you know like or like the pressure of performing and pivoting a little bit we're kind of running a little bit um low on time but i wanted to tap into a couple other questions it really caught my attention i was reading about like your writing process and you mentioned like waking up at 5 a.m do you still do that yeah no i yeah. mean that's also a disorder that i have with the, with the, the bipolar i take medication okay and that the side effect is insomnia so Ooh. since i'm gonna be up anyway you know but i don't like i haven't sure. written i haven't written like in a month when i was teaching a, a workshop i was writing every week and i wrote 20 poems for that month oh, and wow. then the month before that, I was teaching another workshop and I wrote another 20 poems. So right now I'm like, I'm not interested in writing, you know, but mm. 
mm-hmm. sort of go through different, like different, um, you know, most of a lot of my writing goes along with the workshops that I teach because I create prompts for the class and I like to write my own poems responding to the prompts as well. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. That just, I think I, that just the fact that you said like you're writing poems at five in the morning with coffee. And I thought that yeah. was really interesting because you seem like really disciplined and really structured and things like that. But I would, I just really admire like having that kind of discipline because I definitely don't like writing. It's good and bad. Yeah, you're It's right. good and I'm bad mm-hmm. because I just started realizing, you know, I, I'm getting in my later thirties and I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I have like three books that, you know, one published, another forthcoming, another that I'm submitting, but it's like, I haven't really been dating. I've been single for, for a few years and I've been neglecting that aspect of my life like socializing and so yeah I mean I have poems for days you know I've been yeah. published in every magazine in America and, you know but at what cost you know I have I don't have the other things that folks my age have marriages kids so now I'm starting to realize like shit you know I got to catch up a little bit you know mm-hmm. so there's that pressure now that I that I am feeling before I didn't I didn't give I didn't care about you know I sure. was not I, I, I was I was just want to be a writer as great a writer as I can be everything else can go fuck itself you know but then I started I was younger you know I was younger and now I start getting older and it's like maybe I do want a house you know maybe this and that you know like so you know and this is California the houses ain't cheap you know it's like then you start to be you start to focus on the professional aspect of your life and you start doing that and then folks start criticizing that oh you're just in the money like every every step you take as a writer someone's gonna try to fuck with you you know (laughs) So that's also why I would sort of stay away from people, you know, and Mm -hmm. people like if they're a confident writer, they'll probably be, you know, you're confident, you know, you're not a hater, but there's people that are like not confident and they just want to tear you down, you know, whatever you do. Oh, that's American. Oh, that's too Mexican. Oh, you know, you just care about money. Oh, you're not published enough. Like people are just haters, you know, straight up. Like in my neighborhood, I don't even tell people I'm a poet, you know, they would laugh me to the fucking bank. Yeah. Dang, that's yeah. harsh. I mean, I, I never tell people I'm a poet. I mean, at the library, yeah, you know, but like, yeah, mostly if I'm with my cousins and, and my brothers, like, I don't talk about that. You know, they don't talk about yeah. that. They don't care about that I'm published. They never asked me one thing about it. You know, I don't think I've ever heard them say congratulations for any publications what? Or, or the books or anything like that. It's a macho culture, you know, that that, yeah. that Mexicans that we grow up in, you know? Yeah, you did. You did mention like macho earlier and then yeah maybe like being an artist or a poet isn't necessarily like deemed macho um in in a mexican you know setting or a mexican family or community it's in a working class mexican you know yeah yeah well you know thank you so much again i love the fact that you felt comfortable and just you know, kind of vibing, as they say, in LA. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I feel like I already knew you or something, you know? You know, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Let's talk about the pocha with the Adelita tattoo. Yeah, what do you think about it? I mean, let's, there's a lot to uh, dive into. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it speaks 
to, you know, what it means to be in the intersection between Mexican and American, how you understand the iconography of a culture and what it means. You know, when I was a kid growing up, for example, the Mexican flag, I was always taught that it was incredibly sacred, you know, like the Niños Héroes style thing, or you would wrap, you know, the kid wrapped himself in the Mexican flag and threw himself off the Castillo of Chapultepec. And it was, you know, this moment of incredible national pride in the face of Yankee oppression or whatever. Um, You know, and my dad would always point out that like people in Mexico don't have tattoos of the Mexican flag and they don't tend to like decorate their cars with it or, you know, it's this very sacred, holy thing. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to the Rio Grande Valley and everywhere we went, everyone had a tattoo of the Mexican flag. Everyone had license plate decals, t-shirts with it, you know, like all of these things. And my dad would be like, this is not Mexican culture. And yeah, but maybe we had to overcompensate. <clears throat> right. And yeah. and so like for me, like I remember as a kid being like, but it is, but not knowing how to argue with my dad. And it's funny now because now you go to Mexico and you see a lot more of what started as almost like Chicano expressions of Mexican pride have now infiltrated Mexican culture. And so now you see people with a lot more of that stuff and that iconography and, you know, Virgin of Guadalupe tattoos or whatever and things like that. But like it, Mexico did not used to be like that. And there was this very deep sense of the sacred um, that has eroded, you know, over time, like as it does and generations change and all that. And so a lot of that was evoked in reading this Adelita poem to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's not like we probably both speak broken Spanish, but here you are with this icon of the Mexican Revolution, you know, on your arm. But what does it mean? Exactly. Like, well, what, is, what does it mean for the the person in the poem, the the pocha wearing the Adelita tattoo. And we don't get much description of the tattoo. We can just kind of imagine it like maybe black and white, maybe a half sleeve, maybe some, you know, tattoo, yeah. like Americanized style. Maybe it's like single needle, like who knows? All right. So Carla, let me see if I understood what you were saying, right? You were having trouble visualizing the tattoo? Well, not, not even having trouble, but I guess I'm trying to decide if this person or this character, this pocha, uh, has light brown eyes, like honey, red lipstick, blue jeans, you know, and like pocha is very like SoCal. Right. Um, I mean, it's, so- I say border, just border mm-hmm. in general, because it just means you're somebody who speaks Spanglish. Right. Yeah. I thought it meant like somebody that doesn't speak Spanish at all. But maybe it's Spanglish. Yeah. So Bocha is, I guess, Spanglish would be the Spanish speaker who speaks like half English, half Spanish. And then Bocha would be the Mexican side of it. Right. So in that case, a pocha is somebody who is like, ay, hola, me, ay, me duele my head. Yeah, honestly, I love that. <laughs> so that's, that's pocha is, yeah. at least that's what it is in South Texas. Yeah. But so what were you picturing? Um, Yeah, I think I was picturing more so like the big, like Pancho Villa style, like sombrero, and then like kind of like a skull face with the Dia de los Muertos theme. And then, you know, with the revolutionary like bullets thing, like she's an extra in the film, The Three Amigos, you know, like the American imagination of the Mexican revolution, Um, you know, and so kind of going again to that sort of authenticity and lack thereof. Right. I mean, the Adelitas, it's like 
women that stepped up, you know, during the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, historically, um, that is, yes, that is exactly. Well, I, I mean, I can picture this person, you know, like with high heels, like curvy, long black hair. And I think it's great that in the poem, they eat tacos and cocktails and mezcal and talk about music. In the poem, the Adelitas were badass women. So even like the use of badass, right? Yeah, I actually, uh, like there was a part of me that kind of, my inner poetry critic was like, mm. um, just because it's so totally different. Like that's that's not a bad, that's just, uh-huh. it's, it's not saying like, oh no, um, it's more so just, it stuck out tonally mm-hmm. um and it, got, it went to that like kind of bocho world view mm. you know of reducing a group of women that existed in a very specific cultural context and just saying like they were badasses you know like mm, they were like these women had guns these women were actually like as far as like how you understand the adelitas and how they function like yes okay one version of the story is that they're heroes um but another version of the story they're not and you know they killed people and they were gunslingers and they were definitely like not some type of cultured or idiosyncratic people mm-hmm. the way that this bocha is being described you know mm-hmm. and so yeah i mean but i think it speaks to the fact that a lot of people get tattoos of things they also don't super research or know about but also people get you know they'll research and they'll know about it and then they'll claim it too yeah i mean i don't have a frida kahlo tattoo i know a lot of um caucasian people that do and a lot of the time i i feel kind of weird about it honestly like i am mexican no and i don't want to claim it and frida kahlo is not mine to keep you know, like, let's but it is it. interesting. It is interesting. And I mean, tattoos come up a lot in Jose Hernandez Diaz work, right? Like in mm-hmm. Tecolote, he's yeah. you know, getting a Tecolote tattoo, which I, of course, resonated with because I have a giant ass owl tattoo on my back. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I have a Tecolote. Um, but also, like, my sense of Mexica myth and mm-hmm. Mexica, like, the stories and gods that create the pantheon of Mexica, AKA Aztec culture is very personal to me. And I am somebody who, you know, my indigeneity comes from that culture. And even then, like people ask me, I'm like, oh, it's now like, I'm not like sitting there being like, let me tell you what a tecolote is. Right. right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's an owl because it feels personal. Um, And yet I would say like tattoos are highly personal. You should be able to put whatever you want on your body. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But there is a part of me that when I see, for example, like a Dutch person with many Samoan tattoos that are you know, traditional of Samoan culture, uh, and I have a dear Dutch friend who has these tattoos, like, and I give him hell about it, you know, because like, was there nothing cool enough in your own culture that you had to go Ooh. and steal from someone else's? Yeah. I have a fuck ton of tulips. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, why you got to go play? Like, you're Samoan. Damn. Yeah. Like, you 
shoes have meaning. And, you know, and he gets all upset with me and we have these arguments and they're all in good nature and they're loving. But underneath that, there is something about the impulse to own a culture. And what does it mean when it's your own culture, but you're separated from it because of generations and immigration? So how do you like connect to something that you're not even quite sure you have the right to own? Right. I think about that a lot. Right. Like here I'm saying like, oh, Frida Kahlo's half German. Does she really get to like cosplay Mexican? Her mom is Mexican. She's born in Mexico. Right. Like, why am I questioning her legitimacy and her authenticity? And yet I do. And I am, <laughs> you know, and, and so like, and, yeah, I mean, and I think it makes for great just like intellectual, just like stimulation. I'm I'm having. Yeah, we could go on and on and talk for hours about this. And just I did want to along the lines of like Mexican iconography, another great artist, um, Jose Guadalupe Posada, who was a Mexican uh, lithographer. And a lot of people will um, recognize perhaps the skulls yeah. that he did. Um, so Adel- no, I'm sorry. Well, he did do one of Adelita and then he did one of La Catrina. Oh, yeah. His Katrinas are very, very, very famous. I've come across people that like know the image, but know nothing about the artist. Yeah. Or like the meaning or where it came from, the history, the context. Yes. None of that. And I and I've had to kind of like, you know, like tell some people um, and I and not never like in a critical way. You know, I'm always like, oh, did you know, like, da, da, da. Um, but yeah, it's it's so interesting because like I am separated from my culture. And yet here I am like digging or like diving nose deep into but it's like the history of it just to, to make sense of it for myself. But these things matter. Right. right? It's like the song. Um, this land is your land. Oh. <laughs> right. What do you okay? What are your associations when you what was the first thought that came into your head when I said this land is your land? Woody Guthrie. Yes, but other than Woody Guthrie, like when do you <laughs> when do you hear that song now? I I don't know, like once a year. I mean fourth of July. Who who sings it, right? It's like it's like this yeah hyper American thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And and I usually hear it like I don't know in some kind of like Republican rally or like you know at a baseball I game. I don't go to those. And I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, that's yeah. sort of like where you yeah. imagine that that type of song is played, right? Right. But like Woody Guthrie, socialist, totally anti-fascist. Like, <laughs> I love this. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Woody yeah. Guthrie. If he, if Woody Guthrie saw how people were using Woody Guthrie's music today, I think Woody Guthrie would be pissed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, and I think like, and so do you go walk around like educating people? Like actually the song that you're listening to was written by somebody who is, I think, an anti-fascist. So it would technically be Antifa. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, are you, is this, is this the song you think it is? Um, so much art is like that, you know, like it yeah. gets, once it enters the mainstream, once it enters a different type of cultural consciousness, it separates like that. This is where death of the author, I really happens mm. and it like Che Guevara man like mm-hmm. oh my god like has yeah. ever somebody who didn't believe in capitalism made so much money with our image for companies I mean, you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> same with like yeah um Los Zapatistas yes absolutely um, and that so- and Ramona yeah every a lot of icons. Yes. Of like socialist movements have become these like darlings of gift shops and capitalism. And it's, 
wild. And so you you kind of have to stop and think like, when is the moment that the art that you make taken from you? Uh, well, that's the thing. Like, okay, so I, I was just, I gave a poetry reading the other night and someone came up to me afterwards and like, oh, I love that poem about blank. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. Of course, you know, love, love the feedback. Um, but it's not about what that audience member thought. Sure. Um, so it, ma- it made me like, so where does my job end? They thought it was about crayons, but it was really about monkeys or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Without giving away the poem, um, where does like my job end and begin as the artist? But then that's what I love about art because it's so subjective. Yeah. And it's because so, you can't be like, yeah, you right. can write an artist statement and you can say this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Yeah. But people are still going to look at your painting and they might not read the artist statement or care about it. Right. It's about what the painting means to them. It's yeah. about what the song means to them. It's about what the poem means to them. Mm-hmm. And that's how we engage with art. And so, you know, how do you reconcile the making of art with the engagement of art, you know? How do you look at Frida Kahlo? You know, how can you divorce her from her biography? Can you divorce, like, can her art exist in a vacuum when so much of her art is dependent on the reader having an understanding of her pain, of her agony, of her biography, right? And so, like, you know, when do those boundaries become clear? Should they, should they not? You know, when does the author end and the work begin. And I, I can't answer any of these questions. Um, and yet I love a good poetry discussion that gets <laughs> us there. Um, okay. We are crazy over time. So Carla, what are you reading? I'm reading, okay. Roberto Bolaño's little collection, the insufferable gaucho. Bolaño's hard, week. but it's so good. And I know, exactly but on like, what I needed it on like a sentence yeah. level. He's hard to read sometimes. Like, um, are you reading him in English or in Spanish? No, this is uh, translated from the Spanish by Chris Andrews. It's honestly like I was feeling angsty in some kind of way and I needed some. And and anyway, like this was just like an incredible thing to find on my own bookshelf. Um, Highly recommend short essays. It's really given me a lot to think about. Just like what is the void and exactly what we're talking about. Like what is art and but the vote like (laughs) I think there's something that he says in there about um, finding yourself in the void but there's nowhere else to look but this void and the void is um like sex books and like literature which is kind of the vibe i was on <laughs> i agree with the notion of yeah. art and sex as a void yeah in a good way in a good way in a good way in the best in a good way, in a good way. like good. you want to fill the void but there it is itself a void oh, yeah oh, that's my. it and let's think <laughs> like i was reading a melissa broder last time we talked and her fiction novel the pisces um talked a lot about the void and it was like about this woman that was like looking to fulfill and she was an artist and like you know like what yeah it just it goes on but yeah what does it mean to be person of desire and passion and nuance yeah and like what does it mean to want when you already have and oh yeah yeah and and all that what is art yeah this is so exciting and it's what is art Well, I am currently reading Khalifa Hardo Anstein's Woman of Night. I don't know why I'm singing everything today. Um, I'm actually reading it for work-related reasons, but I'm very glad that I got to read it. I enjoyed the shit out of it. I really did. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I really want to, and maybe, you know, later in the season, if we get to talk to a couple of writers that I'm thinking we're going to get to talk about, I will ask a question about this, which is that why is it that so much of 
Latin American literary fiction, when we're dealing with sort of the marvelous real or magical realism, it tends to be with people who have like a second sight. Mm -hmm. And I can think of like four or five novels right now, just off the top of my head that are by like either Mexican American or Latin American writers where like the main engagement with the marvelous is through, you know, either a dream or access to a vision of a world beyond, um, you know, usually like through the ancestors. I I just really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the characters. I enjoyed the landscape. Um, I love a good novel set in the West just because the landscape and the mountains and the plains yeah. take on these incredible meanings. And yeah, it's cool shit. So um, I strongly suggest Woman of Light. Um, yeah. And on that note, um, we're already in July of 2022. Oh, yeah. I know. Wild. It is. It is. So, wow. And we're both so busy. I know, but busy is good. Busy is good. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Charla Cultural is hosted by Adriana E. Ramirez and Carla Lamb. Voice of Goddess and Master of the Archive is Alexis Jabour. Angie Cruz is our advisor and spiritual guide. Transcript support is provided by Clarissa A. Leon. Jesse Welch serves as our production and editorial assistant. Our production design and brand management is done by Little Owl Creative. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.